Just before nine o'clock on the morning of Tuesday, the 13th of November, 1849, two figures emerged into the grey sky on the roof of Horsemonger Lane Gow in Southwark, South London. The first figure was a man, Frederick Manning, who had to be helped up the steep flight of stairs that led to the rooftop gallows. Manning's legs crumpled underneath him when he reached the gallows. The second figure, immaculately presented in a black satin dress, was Marie Manning, Frederick's wife. Marie was more sure of foot as she made her way to the gallows, though she too had to be helped up the stairs as she had requested that a black veil covered her face before she emerged from the prison. An estimated crowd of 30,000 people watched as the couple had nooses placed around their necks. There was a few seconds of tension before the executioner pulled the lever and husband and wife plunged to their deaths. Frederick died instantly while Marie writhed around for a few seconds before staying deathly still. This hanging was so public, the behaviour of the crowd so unruly, that Charles Dickens, who was watching from a room he had rented overlooking the scene, decided that public executions ought to be a thing of the past and began campaigning for an act of parliament to implement that. But what had the Mannings done to deserve their grim fate? As we're going to find out in today's podcast, their tale was one of love, greed, betrayal, and murder. Hello again, and welcome to episode four of the Ministry of History podcast, a podcast that aims to take a look at some of history's lesser known characters and stories. We are now coming to the end of series one. Not quite the end, this isn't the last episode, but we're getting there. Now you'll remember series one has been all about murder, historical true crime. Today's podcast is going to be slightly different from the others. Don't worry, you're still going to get your true crime fix. It's just that usually we spread the stories over two episodes. Today, I didn't think this story was quite long enough to do over two episodes, so I'm just going to condense it into one. Now, don't worry, this doesn't mean you're going to be getting less episodes in series one. I do have at least another one or two shorter stories that I think I can produce an episode on. Today's episode is about the Bermondsey Horror, a love triangle in Victorian London that turned deadly. Now I know what you're thinking, come on Tom, another murder in Victorian London? Shouldn't you be branching out a bit? Well, what can I say? There seems to have been a lot of murders in Victorian London, and a lot of interesting murders too. Today's story features a man losing his life and a husband and wife fleeing to opposite ends of the country in a bid to save their skins. Of course, as you may have noticed from the beginning of this podcast, 
they're unsuccessful in their bid to save their skins and they end up facing a date with the hangman. We'll get on to all of that in a minute, but I just want to give another brief shout out. Sagas of She is a podcast that aims to explore the lives and stories of some of history's lesser known women. There's a lot of interesting women on this podcast, not least the two presenters, Gemma and Emily. They tend to follow themes, women in espionage, women in film, even women serial killers. It's a really interesting podcast and I guarantee you that A, you won't regret listening to it and B, after you listen to it, you're probably going to have a new favourite person from history. Check out the podcast for yourself, Sagas of She, on Apple or Spotify or wherever else you listen to your podcasts. And make sure you also give them a follow on Twitter. It's the same name, at Sagas of She, all one word. Now then, back to the Ministry of History, but not back to Victorian London just yet. Firstly, to explore the background to today's story, we need to head over to Switzerland in the 1820s. The woman who had come to be known as Marie Manning was born Marie Duroux in Lausanne, Switzerland in 1821. She was born into a lower middle-class family and had a string of domestic service jobs from the time she was a girl. In her late teens, she moved to England and found similar work. In fact, she found work in Stafford House, one of the grandest homes in London. It's here that Marie resolved that she would never again be relegated to living in the obscurity she had grown up in. Marie was a good-looking and charismatic young woman with a magnetic personality, dark features and a healthy kind of plumpness that attracted no shortage of male admirers. In 1846, Marie met one such admirer who quite took her fancy. She was accompanying her employer on a trip to France and on the boat, she met 50-year-old Irishman, Patrick O'Connor. O'Connor was good-looking, charming, and importantly, was sitting on a considerable fortune through his money-lending in the dynamic railway industry. O'Connor promised Marie that he would take her out for a meal, for a date, when he returned to London. In early 1847, Patrick O'Connor made good on his promise, but there was just one problem. By this time, Marie was already in a relationship with another man, Frederick Manning. Now Manning was two years older than Marie, so there's a much smaller age gap, and he was a London native. Though his job, a guard for a railway company, wasn't particularly well paid, Manning claimed that he stood to inherit a fortune from his mother. Both Manning and O'Connor proposed marriage to Marie and she was left to decide which one she would have a better life with. O'Connor could certainly give her the luxurious life she had always dreamed of, but she was worried about the age gap between them and by his heavy drinking. 
Manning was closer in age, more easily swayed, more easily dominated, and could also, so he claimed, give her a comfortable lifestyle. In the end, Marie decided to marry Frederick Manning, and after their wedding in May of 1847, they settled into a relatively fashionable home on Miniver Place in Bermondsey, southeast London. But it soon became apparent that Frederick Manning had been lying when he told Marie that he was due to inherit a substantial amount of money. Fearing that she may have married the wrong man, Marie re-established contact with Patrick O'Connor and before long she was engaged in an affair with him. Strangely, from what I can work out, it seems as if Frederick Manning was completely aware of the affair and Patrick O'Connor even occasionally attended dinner at the Manning's house. It speaks volumes of Marie's charm, charisma, magnetic personality that the two men were willing to put up with a situation such as this. This odd situation continued for some time, but by the summer of 1849, Marie and Frederick decided that it would continue no longer. Now more committed to her husband, Marie decided that she would rid herself of Patrick O'Connor, but not of his money. The Manning couple hatched a plot to murder Patrick O'Connor and cash in on his vast fortune. The Mannings' plan was simple, but brutal. They would invite Patrick O'Connor for dinner at their house, make him feel comfortable, offer him some drink, and then, when he least expected it, shoot him with a small revolver that Marie had purchased. Once he was dead, the Mannings planned to bury his body under their kitchen floor and cover it with quicklime, which would speed the decay of the corpse. The morning after his death, Marie would set about retrieving anything of value from his home in Mile End, including O'Connor's railway share certificates. Her presence at his home wouldn't be suspicious, because of course she was a regular visitor. The quicklime was delivered to the Manning House in late July of 1849, and the plan was set to go ahead on the 8th of August. But it was scuppered when Patrick O'Connor brought a friend, Pierce Walsh, along with him for dinner. At the end of the evening, Marie invited him back for dinner the following night, but requested that he come alone so that they may share some more intimate time together. Naturally, O'Connor was happy to agree to this. It was late in the evening of the 9th of August, 1849, when Patrick O'Connor arrived back at the Manning home on Miniver Place. This time, the murderous couple didn't waste any time on niceties. They just got straight down to the work of putting their plan into effect. Patrick O'Connor may have had time to process that something was wrong as he walked into the kitchen, the flagstone had been removed from the floor and the soil beneath had been dug up. But unfortunately for O'Connor, he had no time to save himself. 
Marie shot him in the back of the head and he fell face first into the soil. However, the bullet from the small revolver wasn't enough to kill him and O'Connor writhed in agony as Marie and Frederick looked at each other in horror. It was at this moment that Frederick Manning desperately retrieved an iron bar and bludgeoned his victim to death. With the deed done, the couple hastily buried the body in the soil and covered it in quicklime. They put the flagstone back in the kitchen floor and drank whiskey together in near silence during the sleepless night that followed. The morning after the murder, the 10th of August, Marie Manning went to Patrick O'Connor's house as planned and collected his railway share certificates and any other valuables she could find. The Mannings were giddy at the thought of the wealth they were about to walk into. But the problem was, they weren't seasoned criminals. And frankly, by this point, they were in over their heads. Three days after the murder, a group of Patrick O'Connor's work colleagues visited the home on Miniver Place, explaining to Marie that O'Connor had informed them he was to visit her for dinner on the night of his disappearance. Marie tried to remain calm and claimed that he had never shown at her house that night. While it was enough to satisfy the inquiring men for now, she knew it would not be long before they returned. Frederick and Marie were now terrified of a knock at the door and growing suspicious of one another. It was Marie who bolted first, fleeing on her own to Scotland with the bulk of their ill-gotten wealth. Realising that he had been abandoned, Frederick hastily sold all of the furniture in their home and left for Jersey, an island just off the south coast of England, with the earnings from his furniture sale as well as what Marie had left for him. In the meantime, Patrick O'Connor's friends had reported him missing to the infant Metropolitan Police, which had only been formed 20 years previously. Officers arrived at Miniver Place to speak to the Mannings, but they received no answer when they knocked on the door. By now, they were suspicious enough to force their way into the home and they found it abandoned, with no furniture, no occupants, and a loose flagstone in the middle of the kitchen. It was one of the easier searches that the new police force would ever undertake. The flagstone was removed, and sure enough, the battered body of Patrick O'Connor was quickly found. The missing persons investigation was now a murder investigation and the hunt was on for the killers. It was quickly ascertained where Marie Manning had headed. Inquiries at Kings Cross Station revealed that she had boarded a train bound for Edinburgh. The Metropolitan Police, who were themselves a new invention, used another new invention, the Telegraph, to contact their counterparts in Edinburgh and arrange for her arrest. Marie Manning was arrested in a swanky hotel 
where she had been staying under a false name and enjoying the benefits of her newfound wealth. As it turned out, it would also be the telegraph that led to Frederick's capture. Newspapers across the country had reported on the murder and dubbed it the Bermondsey Horror. Frederick Manning was spotted on a boat bound for Jersey by a former acquaintance who had read about the murder in the papers. This information was telegraphed to police in London, who arranged for Frederick's arrest and transfer back to the city. Frederick Manning was asleep in bed, nursing a hangover, when authorities burst into his room. In his groggy state, he admitted that he had killed O'Connor because he, quote, didn't like him. Frederick and Marie Manning were reunited, but in prison, on the 23rd of August, and their trial began two months later, on the 25th of October, 1849. Now, at this time, the middle of the 19th century, trials were usually pretty quick affairs, done and dusted in an hour or two, but the Manning trial took a full two days. This was because there was a lot of fuss made about the men who could sit on the jury. And remember, at this time, it was only men who were allowed to sit on juries. The defence and the judge were keen to pick men from Swiss or French backgrounds so as to give Marie as fair a trial as possible. Still, the verdict was never really in doubt and the favourable jury selection didn't stop Marie from screaming profanities about English people when she was found guilty. Newspaper reports from the time give details about the Manning's execution. On the morning of Tuesday, the 13th of November, 1849, Frederick and Marie were brought to a chapel together to receive blessings before they met their deaths. Marie appeared stoic that morning, resigned to her fate and more concerned with looking her best than with what awaited her. Frederick was more emotional, trembling as they were led on a painfully long walk from the chapel to the rooftop gallows and collapsing when he reached those gallows. As they stood before the nooses that would kill them, Marie leant over to her husband and gave him a brief kiss, a poignant moment as she tried to comfort him. The nooses went round their necks, the trapdoors opened, and Marie and Frederick Manning were no more. The poignant kiss did not much impress the 30,000 strong crowd who were loud and disrespectful throughout the proceedings and convinced the watching Charles Dickens to campaign vigorously for a ban on public executions. Dickens would get his wish in 1868 and another consequence of this execution was that satin dresses, which Marie had worn so elegantly when she died, almost immediately went out of fashion. In an ironic twist, the Mannings' bodies were buried with quicklime to speed up their decay. Though Frederick's sheer terror as he went to his death 
and Marie's respectable calmness and show of affection for her husband does win them some sympathy, there's an argument to be made that this was in fact a fitting end for two people who didn't deserve much sympathy. As they stood on the gallows high above London on a grey November morning and observed the baying crowd before them, they must have known that they had only themselves and their greed to blame for the fate they were about to suffer. And that brings episode four of the Ministry of History podcast to an end. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter at Ministry History, all one word with no of in the middle. It's there that I post the latest updates about podcasts and blogs. Talking of blogs, don't forget to check out my blog, The Ministry of History on Google, one of the top results, and you'll know it's the right one because it's got the blue and black logo. The Ministry of History is not an academic source. I'm influenced by all types of writings and documentaries. For this podcast, I would like to acknowledge the influence of the following articles. Marie Manning, article published by Murderpedia.com Marie and Frederick Manning, article published by CapitalPunishmentUK.org The 1849 Bermondsey Horror, How Dinner at the Mannings Turned into a Deadly Affair Article by Josh Salisbury, published by SouthwarkNews.co.uk I'd also like to acknowledge the influence of this documentary, The Bermondsey Horror by Murder Maps. <laughs>